Thanks, Karen, very much uh, indeed. So we've gone full circle. Uh, about 12 weeks ago, um, Elijah stood against King Ahab, and we're beginning to read of the beginning of the end of his reign, and a new day is about to dawn in uh, the nation. Why? Because one man rose up, and uh, we followed something of his journey. And what's interesting, as we uh, end the journey, we started with a man, and we'll end up in a moment with uh, a family. So, hashtag time to rise up. Here we go. But next week, just to to say um, something about that, as we get into this new uh, series, this new theme of Christmas lyrics, if uh, you want to uh, get onto the social media platforms that we use and say something about, uh, this is my favorite carol, and this is why, in 144 characters for Twitter, or slightly longer if using a Facebook status, uh, or, or put on a picture on Instagram uh, and hashtag Christmas lyrics or hashtag Burlington. Uh, we'll just journey towards next Sunday, beginning to talk about what will take us as a theme through the next few weeks. So we end up then with a family a growing family, a nation that gets revived, and a band of prophets on the loose. And prophets are like that, aren't they? A bit like evangelists. You always need to be wary of them. And this is a a band of prophets and evangelists that will fearlessly and courageously proclaim something of the truth of God in their day and in their time. So we're in chapter 6, and we're at verse 1. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Company, the King James Version translated company as sons, the sons of the prophets, a familial word. And it's not surprising that uh, we read of familial language Elijah and Elisha were uh, archetypal stories around discipleship that Jesus himself would model his discipleship pattern on. They, as we read these chapters, can see that they, some of them lived in community. They shared meals and hospitality together. They journeyed together. They got married, brought up children. The family of prophets had a, a father figure in Elisha. To be honest, it reads something like a modern-day missional community. And this band of brothers, this company of prophets, this family that was journeying was growing, growing in all kinds of different ways. Firstly, growing in numbers. A company of the prophets said to Elijah, look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. That's a great problem to have, to have a meeting place, a living space, a dwelling place that's too small. And all of us are invited to be part of a company of people. We're all invited to be part of a a band of brothers and sisters, a, a band of prophets or a company of musicians or a company of people who've committed to listening to God week by week in a small group 
or a company of people, a community that reaches those that love to sow, or a community that, uh, that uh, lives and breathes around people that live at Christ Church House and whatever other context we could uh, express. In different ways, everybody here is invited to be part of a company, a band of brothers and sisters, part of a family. And in those places where we belong, the missional community, the small group, the team that puts on, the, the, the group that organizes, the group that's part of a particular neighborhood, however that group is defined, are you expecting next year that you will need a bigger place? That you will need a bigger place? That's the invitation to begin to dream this morning that you might need a bigger place. It's not our church psyche, it's not in our church psyche, it's not in the Western church psyche particularly, to think about needing a bigger place. The culture that we embody, that we uh, uh, breathe, eat and drink and breathe as Western Christians is usually to hope to maintain the status quo. We'll naturally, in our churches, in this church therefore, because it's true of so many churches, we'll naturally think of the status quo. What I think about this time next year is that I'll be doing the same thing with the same people. In fact, we quite like that, don't we? Bit of routine bit of familiarity, bit of I know where I am because I've done this seven million times. The same thing with the same group of people. That tends to be the culture that we embody. Or worse, or, or maybe not worse, but, but maybe added into that pressure is that our experience often is that our groups don't grow, rather they decline. And uh, I was uh, with a group of uh, retired ministers just a, a week or so ago, and one of the characteristics of the time that we spent together was helping them process what had happened in their church life and ministry over the sweep of the years. And typically, those ministers have led during periods of decline. That's been our story. Generally, that's what being, has been people's experience. So, uh, uh, that reinforces, at best, let's maintain where we Ah, let's hold on to the status quo. Or, there's another facet to our culture that, that, that kind of seeps in really quickly. There's a group of six of you. And you all get on really well. Can't imagine that in church life, can you? But hold it for a minute. A group of six, you all get on really well. And then after a few months... There's talk about introducing a seventh person. You're just not quite sure. Anyone know what I'm talking about? So very quickly, the people of God that are passionate about growth, people of God that are all about reaching out, people of God that long to see the kingdom come, settle into a kind of nurture, a comfortableness. That's why you sit roughly in the same places week by week. T 
No, you're right, Tony. You're right. You've, moved, ooh, you've moved 12 foot. Hey, go. Which is 12 foot further than most people this morning. So I don't know what they're talking about. That's why next Sunday you have to come really early to get your seat. Imagine not getting your seat for the Christmas service. Perhaps you'll never come again. Someone's in my seat. And so we have this culture of, uh, of like, let's just keep the status quo, because uh, that would be pretty good. And we have this, this culture that, that quickly gets comfortable and familiar with our routines. And whilst routines are very good and rhythms are very important, and I'll say something about that before we finish this morning, they also have this backstory that they can easily and quickly make us very comfortable. And the reason that when something slightly changes in church life feels so uncomfortable is that it's been the same for seven million years. And so the slightest change can impact us because we're very routine people. Are we expecting that we'll need a bigger space next year? And of course, I, I hear you say it's not about numbers. It's, um, we, we, we on, on the kind of report that goes to the Charities Commission, when you write about your, the annual report of the church and you're trying to talk about what, what this year has been all about and, and so on and justify our existence in the public domain. Talk about it. It's not necessarily all about numbers. But, but in a way, it is about numbers, isn't it? Isn't it? If you go to the lifeboat station, there on the wall, what will there be? The number of people saved. That, that's what will be on the wall as a declaration as to why they exist and why they are worthy of being called a lifeboat station. The numbers matter. When a tragedy happens, we will be told either the number who died or the number that was saved. In the headline of every news report about a tragedy, true or false? Because the number matters. Or what? Are people just numbers? Is it just a statistic game? No. Numbers matter because those numbers are people. We count people because people count. Because people count. You know, if we've gone out for the day with some young people and we bring most of them back, (laughs) I tried that early on. It doesn't go down too well. Secondly, a family growing, growing in relationships. Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Place where we meet is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place where we can live. If you're using the pew in the Bible, the Bible's in the pew, the pew in the Bible. The Bible on your seat, in the pew. Uh, That's what it says. Some of the translations have messed around with trying to understand what's going on in this verse, whether there's a distinction between place in verse 1, sorry, uh, the meeting in verse 1 and the living in verse 2. New King James Version, well, in fact, the authorized version, everyone listening, authorized version, um, the, the authorized version has dwelling for both of these. 
that these are places not where they would meet, but where they lived, where they inhabited, where, they, where they, their lives intersected. A bigger place, not to meet, but a bigger place to live. And it's fascinating, isn't it, how Elisha has developed the same culture that Elijah had taught him. Can you remember that Elijah took Elisha, do you realize it's taken me all this time to realize that A comes before S, therefore Elijah is before Elisha? If I'd known that 12 weeks ago, it would have been easy. So Elijah took Elisha on a journey from being a servant, remember how he referred to him as Lord and Master, right to the end of his life when Elijah says, my, what did he cry out as the chariot went up into heaven? Father, a journey from servanthood to sonship. That's the journey of discipleship that Elisha had learned. And he's doing the same with those that are around him. The followers are becoming family. So not surprisingly, when Jesus started his ministry, he says, I I need some people. So he gathered 12 of them. And at the beginning, as they were trying to work it all out, the disciples kind of said, well, we're, we're servants. We'll do what you ask. And then uh, towards the end, Jesus said, I don't call you servants anymore, but I call you friends. And then he said, come, let's share the Passover, the family meal together. With whom are you growing deeper in relationship so that you are becoming more like family? As you think about launching into 2015, who are you moving closer to in relationship that you might become more like family. You can't do that with everyone, but you can do that with someone. You can do that with someone. You'll have to have a rhythm, despite what I said about a few moments ago. See, if you don't have a rhythm, nothing much will happen. Pop in when you're passing. Top tip, that's what you say to people that you don't want to pop in. (laughs) No one pops in when they're passing, unless they're really family, true or false. So, you need a rhythm. Let's, Let's meet. If we want this relationship to go somewhere, let's meet. That's why the relations, that's why people get baptized, because there's a rhythm. They do stuff together, week in, week out. Wednesdays, we all know where they're going to be. Saturday mornings, we all know where they're going to be. Sunday mornings, we all know where they're going to be. Tuesday nights, we all know where they're going to be. Monday nights, we all know. Wednesday lunchtimes, whatever it might be, we all know where they're going to be, because the family has a rhythm. It doesn't work too well in my family if I say, hey guys, we'll eat sometime which is basically my approach when Kerry's not around. We'll eat sometime. What are we going to do with that box of vegetables? Where's the receipt? (laughs) And so there are rhythms. And the people that we want to, to, to grow with, we have a rhythm with, and we make plans for. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen even though we might really want it to. Have there been things in 2014 and you really wanted them to happen with somebody, 
but you never had a plan and you never made a rhythm. And it probably never happened. With whom are you growing deeper and becoming more like family? By this, Jesus says, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have this familial love, if you live in family. Often we've used those verses, haven't we, to say, well, if these three or four churches all get together, then everybody will know that we love one another and the world will believe. No, no, the world doesn't give us stuff that we have our meetings together. doesn't care two hoots. But when people that are close to you see you doing family with those that you are close to, they go, this is altogether different. And Jesus said, when people see that, and when they see that it's altogether different, they go, that's amazing. When they see the power of you loving people that really in normal life you wouldn't love and forgiving people when they can see that you've been hurt and sticking with people when it's hard and difficult, all that sort of stuff. When they see that kind of love, the same love the disciples had for one another and were trying to work it out when they wandered down the road and they said, Jesus, by the way, who's the greatest? What a classic moment. But when they see people whose instinct is to live like that, loving in a different kind of way, the world goes, there's something really different going on here. God must be in the middle of that. So, they start building these houses where they can dwell, new structures that affect their growth and numbers and relationships. And they just get going on this God-given plan and they lose an axe head. An axe head was really expensive in those days. Why is it the thing that you've borrowed breaks first? It's in the Bible. They'd load, and then they're like, oh, I borrowed this. What am I going to say? How can I, how can I go back to the owner of the axe and say I dropped it? I spilled coffee over the book. I'll have it back anyway, even with coffee on it. The book, that is, not the axe. I wonder sometimes whether ministers should carry an axe. But there are laws against that sort of thing. <laughs> Dear me. I've got my pistol. So, so they drop the axe. Where are we? Okay. What happens next? Well, a miracle happens. This is the family is growing in the miraculous. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elijah cut a stick, threw it there, and made the iron float not bad. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. We, we, we need to be a family that's growing in the reality that God can do the impossible thing. We need to be a family that believes that God can do the impossible thing. And it's been fantastic this year to see glimpses of the miraculous. Numerous people have known God's healing touch this year. Stories told, stories untold in this uh, scenario. On on Friday, one of the Mitchell Community's readers rings up, says, we need a miracle. Now, we begin to pray. Five minutes later, a text, we've had a miracle. Epic. Epic. Why? Because if God is the God of the impossible... And if he's in the middle of his people, then we should expect to see from time to time things that don't have a normal explanation. 
And I know that we want to rationalize it all out and we know that God's put rules in nature and he's given us brains and there are certain rhythms of orderly things that must take place. Absolutely. But on most pages of the Bible, God is messing about with those rules. So why shouldn't he mess about with them still? And here was a family that was learning to believe, to trust in the miraculous. In its wider sense, we're looking for transformation. The breaking of addictions, of people finding faith, of people discovering the power of forgiveness. Where is your life more miraculous than last year? And where would you like the miracles to be in the year that's coming? Where would you like to see more miracles? And what will you need to do to see that happen? What will you need to do to see that happen. And so we get the picture. Relationships are developing. People are drawn into community, being discipled. They're learning a way of life. They're multiplying both numerically, but they're also multiplying in their prophetic skill. How do we know? Because when we get to chapter 9, we get to a massive moment in the story. It's one of those pivotal moments when the new king will prophetically be anointed. That God will put his hand on Jehu and say, you will be the next king. The end of Ahab and Jezebel and all that's gone before is over. It's a huge moment in the story. And Elisha sends one of his team, whose name we don't even know. And I think that's brilliant. Elisha, verse 1 of chapter 9, sends one of the team, whose name we don't even know, because we can all do the stuff. And we're all growing and learning. The prophet Elijah summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil with you, and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nisi, go to him, and blah, 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 and basically anoint him and sort him out. Here was a family growing in confidence. What Elisha could do on one day... There was another day when some of his disciples could do. And another day, and another day, because she was a group of people that were growing in confidence in doing the things that God was asking them to do. And what's beautiful about this moment is it reminds us that this ultimately is not a story about two great superheroes in the Bible. But it's about one man who trusted in God and and the story ends with a whole family of people doing the stuff. A whole family of people that are part of the journey. And in churches sometimes we go, well, it's about what what the the minister or, or the leader or whoever can do. No, it's not. Next Sunday you'll be hoping, I'll preach a good one because you're bringing someone. I'm, I'm not preaching a good one next Sunday. It's going to be rubbish. Still going to bring them? Well, time then. Time then. So it's not, it's not about what one of us can do, any of us, but it's about what we can do. It's about what we can do. And the most significant encounters next Sunday, when this place is full of people, will not be this encounter The most significant encounters will be all these encounters all of the time, way in, way out, after, before, during, all of that stuff will be by far the most important encounters. 
And here was a family growing in confidence that all of them had a part to play. So Elisha could go, this is an epic moment. It's the biggest moment. Go on, you go. You go. You go. And it's been a real absolute thrill to see people, uh, well, not just over this last year, but particularly over this last year, growing in confidence and doing in things A, they never ever thought they would do, and, and finding that, hey, I can do this. You know, a few times now we've had baptisms coming up, and the, like, get out of the way, we know how to do this now. How cool is that? Because that's what being part of a family is all about. Where would you like to grow in confidence through the coming year? One man became a family movement. It was true of Abraham. It was true of Elijah. It was true of Jesus. It can be true of you. One person. If one person would rise up, something can shift in the spiritual realm. And one person can become a family, can become a movement. And this movement changed the nation. That's our story. That's the God that we serve and believe in. That's what he's called us to do and to be. So who will rise up? Who will rise up? Who will rise up?